Hello and welcome back to the True Crime Guys podcast. I'm Lauren. And I'm Michael. How's everybody doing? We're fresh off a Patreon exclusive last week. If you're wondering where we were on your free feed, right? that's where we were. We did a Patreon exclusive on the White, uh, White House farm murders, right? Oh, yes. Very interesting case. Very uh, tangled yes. web there. Over uh, in uh, Great Britain. That's right, yeah. Tolls Hunt Dossie. Yeah. Right? I think that's where it took yeah. place in Essex, England. Uh, mm. Yeah, somebody's serving time for that one, but we're, we're not so sure they got the right guy on that one. But I'm still, pretty sure. I'm just not Yeah, pretty sure. sure. Pretty sure. Yeah, so if you want to hear that, go on over to patreon.com slash guys. Otherwise, we got a really spooky episode for you this week. Staying in the, the uh, theme of... I mean, we always do spooky stuff. We're a true crime podcast, but I try to find right. like even spookier stuff for Halloween season. And it's right. upon us. It's upon us. It's it's going by too quickly, I think. I, I needed more time to watch scary movies and stuff. Kind of bummed. I know, right? I was... Uh, <clears throat> we, we went out with the family yesterday morning. We went to the flea market, and there were people obviously selling like Halloween stuff, like a lot of Halloween stuff and costumes and whatnot. And this one guy, he was like... My, my daughter was looking at this little dress that she wanted. It had like a skull and crossbones on it and shit. And... And I was like, oh, you don't need that. You know, you already got a costume or whatever. And he gave it to her. He was like, oh, you can have it. He's like, because nobody's going to want it next week anyway. And I was like, well, why won't they want it next week? And I was like, holy shit, Halloween will be over next week. Yep. By the time people listen to this, it's going to be just a few days away. Yeah. So. Golly. I feel like it just, I feel like Halloween season just started, like you said. I feel like the yep. the change of seasons this year has just just rocketed upon us. But I think it's just because we have so much outside going on in our world that the normal mundane things that happen all the time the changing of seasons the holidays that stuff's almost become boring and mundane compared to all the craziness that's going on in the world today and we just don't notice it it's not happening any faster we just don't notice it yeah Hmm. yeah well we got to get in the extra spooky cases like the phantom killer that we're doing this week in when we can before before uh halloween is over and this is an extra long crime line, so the sooner we get into it, the better. And uh, let's do it. Know how it feels to be alive with no desire to live. I know how it feels to die inside. Try hard to forgive in my way. Finding out is cause of love just let me down In a world so full of love Yet not enough to go around Once was so proud to have a love That I could burst with pride But that sunshine turned Storm and now that's all I feel inside And it's enough Make me wish that I could hide And not be found In a world so full of love It's not enough to go around It's it one day one day not find the answers to By the time I die I wonder If by then I even will 
Yet not enough to go around Thanks. All right, our case this week, the Texarkana killer, um, later to be named the Phantom Killer. Absolutely. Dude. Very crazy case. One of my favorite town names in all of America, Texarkana, right? Just combine just combine all the nearest areas, yeah. right, and just make one crazy word. I love it. Texarkana. Hell yeah. We got uh, Cal Navari here. If you start heading south on the 93 or the 95, I forget. If you're heading towards like Laughlin from... Las Vegas, there's a you pass through a town called Calnavari where it's kind of the same concept, California, Nevada, and Arizona. Oh, okay. Man, I didn't even know so, about that. That's yeah. pretty cool. So it's like right there at the right there at the uh I guess tri where all three states yeah, come it's together. It's a three way border. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. That's all this case uh, had a little bit of a zodiac feel to me. Uh, I know that he you know, the killer didn't taunt the media. Like like the Zodiac did, that was what made that case so big. But at the same time, the like the killings themselves, the way that they were perpetrated, reminded me of the Zodiac. Yeah, it did. It did in that way. Um, but what was different from the Zodiac was it felt like there was so much going on in this town, anyways. Like this t- this mm-hmm. was a town riddled with crime, as as opposed to the Zodiac wasn't so much. Right? It was he was more. I feel like I, I don't know. I don't know. I got so I we'll talk about the book that I got for this case. I actually did. I finished it. Um, and it was a very long, but fantastic book. It's called The Phantom Killer by James Presley. Yeah. Talked a lot about Texarkana, obviously. Um, and I feel like it gets it gets a bad rap as far as like being this crime-riddled town, Did- but it's it, it, it really wasn't dangerous unless you were looking for it. It, there was, it was definitely, it was almost like a Wild West type of town. It's a downtown area, I think. Right. But, you know, there was also plenty of safe areas for families and kids could roam the streets and be fine and everything like that it's just like if you were going to bars they could get rowdy and stuff could happen well that's anywhere Um, but other than that i feel like it was fairly safe yeah i was about to say i found some some very conflicting um evidence about the town early on or history about the town rather there were some things that said that said what you just said where uh, this was a town where people left their doors unlocked and never locked their cars or you know left their windows mm-hmm. down at night, whatever. But and then other sources talked about how this city was quote unquote little Chicago, and that cr- crime was so everywhere, so infested in this city that it was easy to blend in. They, the city was almost numb to violent crime. So I'm like, which is it? It can't it can't be both. Right. But what from what you're saying makes a lot more sense. Obviously, downtown, where the train stations are, where the yeah. hubs are, where people are coming in, mm-hmm. drifters and, and business people. It was a melting pot right, right. down there. There was, there was I mean, a, a, I think the nightlife was, it could be uh, seedy and dangerous for sure because uh-huh. of just the, the melting pot that was like a railroad crossing station type of a town. And then the, the town was split too between Arkansas and Texas. There was literally like the Arkansas side and the Texas side, but they were really like, there was no space between them. It was like basically the eight mile road dividing them, you know, in a sense. Right. Um, and they, you know, it was like really they were one city, but they viewed themselves as two different cities, kind of like, you know, in Texas with football counties and stuff like that. It's like you guys like looking at each other's fields, but at the same time you're like mortal enemies. Yeah, yeah. A little bit of that type of feel to it. Yeah, I think you have that anywhere. And then when you have a state line as an as an actual physical divider, I think maybe those tensions could rise even higher. Don't you think? Exactly. You know, you got a little Arkansas yeah. pride. You got a little Texas pride. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Yeah, so this story takes place in the 1940s, late 1940s, in a place called Texarkana, 
which was a, a city in the U.S., obviously, in the state of Arkansas and the county seat of Miller County. This city is located across the state line from its twin city, Texarkana, Texas. So it was Texarkana, Arkansas, Texarkana, Texarkana, uh, Arkansas. Right, like Kansas They're City, like Kansas neighbors. City, right? You got Kansas City, Missouri, and you also got Kansas City, Kansas. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, the city was founded at a railroad intersection on December 8th, 1873, and was incorporated into Arkansas on August 10th, 1880. Some people called Texarkana, like you mentioned, Little Chicago because of its location as a railroad hub um, and how it brought great performers and famous politicians, but the rails also brought drifters and criminally inclined strangers. The state line that famously cuts through the center of the massive United States post office and courthouse also provoked fierce high school football rivalries and created deep divisions that made law enforcement complicated and inefficient. Yeah, we, we've, yeah we've learned about this in some other cases, how big those football rivalries can be, even all the way up till today with the Greg Kelly case, talking about Texas mm -hmm. football, how serious mm -hmm. they take that shit. Yep. I mean, it's, if it bleeds into your police department and how you view someone from that, from that town... That's a little bit excessive, in my opinion. Like, I'm all about football rivalries. Yeah, bring out the best in people. You know, have something to root for. Have something to fight for. But when it bleeds over into the justice system, that's where, that's where you have to draw the line. That's too much, man. Right. You're, taking, you're taking this high school sport a little too serious. These kids aren't even getting paid. <laughs> Shit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, so let's dive into these crimes that, that became infamous later on. The first attack, however, kind of flew under the radar and was looked at the wrong way by law enforcement and, and wasn't really attributed to the Phantom Killer until later. Right. Uh, the first attack takes place on February 22nd, 1946. Now, this is the late 40s in Texarkana. 25-year-old Jimmy Hollis and 19-year-old Mary Jean Laurie uh, had gone on a double date to the movies and a diner for ice cream. This is their first date. Um, Jimmy had had his eye on Mary for a little while, mm -hmm. decided to ask her out, and they decided to go on a double date uh, because it just kind of takes the pressure off. I think it's a good call. Yeah, no doubt. Know, for, for a first date. And everyone feels safer, especially the women. I think yeah. they feel a lot safer with somebody they don't know, haven't known, you know what I mean? More of a, if it's a mm -hmm. blind date situation, or even a first date, even yeah. if you know them. Yeah. And so they go on this double date for, you know, to the movies and f to an all-night diner. All-night diners play a big role in this. That must have been a big thing back then. Oh, yeah. I didn't realize that you could stay, you know, these kids back in the 40s stayed out all Dude, night long all the time. Think about it. Like it was just a common theme. Well, they got nothing better to do. And then also, I mean, all-night diners are still a thing, bro. Waffle House, IHOP, freaking Denny's. Like, this, th that, yeah. them places ain't going nowhere. People yeah. always need all-night diners. They always need somewhere what to crash. What a pain he has to be working the all-night shift, though, because it seems like it's just all kids that come in in the middle of the night drunk and shit. It is. It is. When I used to when I used to play, like, bars and clubs and shit in Charlotte, that was, like, a thing that we used to always do. After we play, we'd always go to Waffle House. You know, it's, like, 1, yeah. 2 in the morning. And, yeah, you always there's always crazy people shit going down in there. But it is what it is, man. It's part of the culture. We need somewhere to sober up, too, get a coffee, you know, before you go and... Like, for 12 hours. It seemed like almost every victim in this in this uh, in this serial killer's Rolodex, almost every victim had gone to the diner before he struck. Isn't that weird? I was like, what happened? <clears throat> yeah. I think we need to look at so, the uh, associates uh, at that diner, man. Right. Yeah, they're tipping him off. Apparently. Yeah, something's weird. So Jimmy, after dropping off the other couple, um, him and Mary stopped on a secluded roadside. Uh, outside of town like a you know a dirt road type of 
you know, this this is a, we know exactly what this is. A common right? thing also back in the forties and fifties was the uh, the lovers' lane That's type right. of thing. That's right. That's where you had to get it on. You couldn't bring the other one back to your parents' house, so you had to find a you know a dark dirt road somewhere. That's right. And, um, and cars were so roomy back then; they had it made. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's you're right, man. It was always the big bench seat. There wasn't yeah, uh, bench seat in the front so much going back. on in the car. Yeah, them cars, man. They had so much room in there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all the safety shit was just taken out. Yeah, so. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> all the all the stupid shit like airbags and seatbelts and bullshit. Right. You don't need all that stuff. Yeah. On Star, no. get the hell out of. Well, they're they're literally they were like driving around in fucking tanks anyway. There's things like that's right. Twenty thousand pounds of steel the, rolling down. When the road. there's twelve feet between you and the front bumper of your car, you really don't need a seatbelt. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, you're basically <laughs> driving school buses around. <laughs> exactly. No power steering too, man. I, that's why uh, dudes back there in their arms are buff. You know, they're just yeah. They're all walking around like fucking Popeye. Steer a boat with no power steering on the road. <laughs> that's exactly right, dude. I love those old sedans, though. Maybe not back as the '40s, not far back as the '40s, but I do. I do. Yeah. There's a place in my heart for those old like '80s, '70s, uh, like sedans, like Caprices and shit like that. You know, I don't know. Yeah. There's just something cool about them. When you drive them, they're just so comfortable. They're like riding on a cloud. Really, the suspension is garbage because it's like too soft, especially mm-hmm. to today's standards. You know, you go around a curve and you feel like oh, you bottom out if you hit anything. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You go over your metal scraping on the yeah, road. Yeah, exactly. When you're going around a curve, like the corner of your bumper is like almost touching the ground. But you know, yeah. it's what it is, man. It rides nice. <laughs> mm-hmm. So they drop off the other couple. They find this secluded road outside of town, and they're, you know, going to hang out, talk, and maybe things will, you know, escalate. Uh, But before too long, a man approached. He blinded them with a flashlight upon his approach. Now, the book talked about how Jimmy later said that for some reason he had gotten out of the car. Now, this is Jimmy's, what Jimmy said, that he just had this weird uh, just urge to stand outside the car and look up at the stars. I think we've all done that before. And this is when he gets approached by this man. So he, Jimmy was actually outside of the, the vehicle. Oh, okay. Um, I thought man he got out of he, the vehicle when the man, when he saw him, but he was already standing outside the vehicle. According to Jimmy. Now, Jimmy had suffered, as we're about to get into, suffered some serious trauma, you know, and I don't know how good his memory would be following this incident. It was kind of all over the place because he suffered some serious, like, trauma to the head. That's right. Um, but according to the book, the book said that he, Jimmy just kind of, you know, maybe they'd already done their deed and he got out to just kind of soak it in mm-hmm. and, and look at stars and enjoy the night or whatever. But, you know, that's when he got approached by this man who blinded him with a flashlight then held them at gunpoint and ordered, uh, both of them out of the vehicle. This man was wearing a white cloth over his head, like a white cloth bag or something along those lines with the eyes and the mouth cut out. Yeah. Um, he was, according to the witness, he was tall and fairly young as well and had a very angry, very demanding voice that said, I don't want to kill you, fellow, so do what I say. And he ordered Jimmy to take off his pants. Um, this is something that he would commonly do with the men. I think it was a way of, like, immobilizing them. Um, it was. Sometimes, I, I think it was more just a matter of putting your pants down around your ankles so you couldn't run or do any, make any quick movements. Right. And you feel embarrassed just standing there. You know yeah. what I mean? It's it's a demeaning thing as well. You don't feel like you're really ready to fight now that your pants are around your ankles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so as soon as Jimmy took took his pants down or off, the man struck him over the head 
uh, two times as very hard to the point where uh, Mary actually said that she thought he was he was shot because the sound of the the cracking of his skull was that intense. Um, the man then went around to Mary and told her to run after stru- he struck her, and then he told her when she got up to run. Very very creepy like hunting type of situation. That's that's what I um, thought too. I thought like uh, was the guy Robert. Uh, Robert, the yeah. guy that hunted people in uh, Hanson. Hanson, yes, Robert Hanson in Canada. That's what kind of reminded mm-hmm. me of. Because looking into this, I, I didn't really know much about this killer, uh, especially with it being unsolved. You know, I haven't really looked into it. But that's that's the first instinct I got. I was like, oh shit, he likes to hunt people. Okay, but that mm-hmm. that's not really the case though. That's just this was one of those one-off things in this situation, wasn't it? At least it seemed like it. Yeah, well, I mean, he did he did hunt her down after this, but she's wearing high heels, so she's not going to get anywhere very fast. Uh, and she obviously has just been struck in the head. She's just watched her, you know, her date get pummeled, and now you know now this creep with a bag over his head's telling her to run. So she she scrambles away, wearing high heels, toward a ditch. Um, and as she starts running away, he says, "Not that way, the other way." So she changes direction and starts running in a different direction. He then chased her down and in, a, in that same angry voice said, what the hell are you running for? She said, you told me to. He then says, you're a goddamn liar. <laughs> um, he then proceeded to strike her again with the metal object. He had some sort of a pipe or something along those lines. Yeah. Um, at which point, after striking her again, he sexually assaulted her with his pistol. Uh, this is something we've seen with sexual criminals. Uh, you know, people. I, th- I think there's... Maybe if you read the tea leaves a little bit, you, you, this guy might be impotent. That might be where some of his anger towards yep. women comes from because he does this. He does this several times where he assaults women with his pistol. Yes, yes, uh, that's very common for that type of criminal for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, she then forced herself to her feet, you know, out of anger and pain, um, and told him, "Go ahead and kill me." She was just so degraded and angry and and hurting at this point that she was just like, "Just get it over with and shoot me. I don't want to suffer this anymore." Right. At which point, suddenly, he turned and left her, standing in the uh, road alone, alive. Um, and she thinks that it's because there was some headlights that had come into the area, and he got nervous and ran off that someone else was there. You know, it could be this that. This is around the same time that Jimmy had also gotten to his feet and found someone driving down the road to wave down. So that it could have been Jimmy finding this, these people, waving them down for help that could have scared off the killer. This was kind of happening simultaneously. Jimmy had somehow gotten up with a cracked skull and wandered towards help. Okay. I was going to say, it could be that. It could be the fact that he saw the headlights, or it could be the fact that he was no longer into this now that she wasn't afraid of him anymore. She was like, just kill me. Yeah, she kind of took away the power yeah, from him by doing that. Yeah, she did. She took away everything. She wasn't scared. She wasn't running. She was just like, you know, mm-hmm. go ahead and kill me. Fuck you. Like, what else are you going to do? And yep. I think, yeah, I think he was... Uh, but also, the fact that he had a mask on... You know, anytime I hear that a killer has a mask, I'm always thinking like, okay, the victim might get away from this. Right, because mm-hmm. if he if he attacks you with a mask on, there's a good chance he he doesn't want he's, you to identify him. To, later. Yeah, right. Also, that's I, I found in um, I found in one podcast I listened to, it was oh it's, shit, it's very well done. I will find the name of it. I promise. Um, but they talked about how these two both gave completely different testimonies about what who the what the attacker looked like, even though he oh, was yeah. wearing a mask. You know. <clears throat> Like, uh, mm-hmm. well, Mary said that he was, she said that he was a black man. Right. A light skinned black man. And Jimmy said that he was definitely white um, and he was young. So, and they were both kind of adamant about it. You know, it was, it was kind of odd. She said that based off of his voice, I guess. Right. 
Yeah, that's what she um, said. She said the way that he pronounced words and things like that, that she thought he was a light-skinned black man, but Jimmy thought mm-hmm. that he was a dark-skinned white man. Mm-hmm. So, And keep in mind, it was dark, obviously, So, and he's wearing a fucking bag over his head. Right, 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 right. That's true. But Jimmy also, I'm pretty sure he didn't even think, he said that he didn't have a bag over his head like she said. So he, I think he was really, I mean, it's not even funny, but I think he got pummeled so bad that his, his memory was very shoddy at best on, on what had happened. Yeah. You know, because he just, he, he seriously suffered some severe brain damage. He almost died by, by how many times he got struck in the head with this metal pipe or whatever it was. Right. Okay, that podcast, real quick, is called Unsolved Murders. Um, pretty oh, okay. easy. It's uh, it's by Parcast Network, so it's you know it's really well produced, and they they kind of act out a lot of these scenes. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't mm-hmm. recommend it as like your main study source, but it is cool once you know the story to go back and listen to their take on it and the way that they act these scenes out. It's pretty interesting. I can't recommend the the Phantom Killer book by James Presley enough, too, man. It's really if you if you're really fascinated by this mm-hmm. case and you got a bunch of time to kill either reading the book physically or listening to the audio audio f- uh, version right. of it it's it's really well done yeah yeah okay <clears throat> so yeah um in spite of their savagery uh in the savage attacks that they suffered and endured jimmy and mary survived others however would not be so lucky and this crime would not necessarily it would kind of it would fly under the radar as i mentioned earlier um, because the police assumed that this was a personal attack on them they'd both been they were both divorced actually and, you know, I think Jimmy was still going through the, the process of his divorce, although it was mutual. And, but how, nonetheless, the police believed that this was someone who wanted to hurt them, that, you know, attack them personally. This was not just some random attack out there. Um, so the police decided to not really later connect this until much later. Even though Mary, you know, when the when the attacks start becoming public uh, for what this killer's about to do, this rampage is about to go on, she continually is pressuring the police saying, this is the same guy that attacked me and Jimmy. Right. I know it is, and they were just kind of blowing her off. Right, right. I didn't know that uh, they were both divorced. They're so young, 19 and Dude, 25. that's how it was, man. You know, that's another thing you notice about how different the 40s were is that many of these cases, like the one we're about to go on, this this next case we're about to go on with this uh, is a 29-year-old man uh, on a date with a 17-year-old girl. It's it's Whoa. It was a different time. Yes, but yeah. yes, it was. Indeed. 25 and 19 were Jimmy and Mary, and they were, they were already divorced. It was kind of like the first person you got with you would marry. Right, they know. got married at like 13, so... Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, diff- different time for no sure. At 29 and 17 year old going out on a date would disgust most people now, rightfully so. Yeah, yeah, that, that was kind of commonplace back then. Yeah. So, one month after the attacks on Jimmy and Mary on March, uh, in March of 1946, 29 year old Richard Griffin, who had served in the Navy during World War II and was relieved that he had made it through the war alive, uh, was taking out his girlfriend since February. So they'd been, he'd been dating this 17 year old girl named Pollyanne Moore for about six weeks. Okay. Uh, it makes me wonder, was she 16 when he started dating her when he was 29? Cause that's even worse, but yeah, I know. Right. <laughs> depending on her birthday, he could have started dating her when she was still 16. Oh my God. Now they the times moved a little quicker though. She she was already a graduate at 17. She had uh, graduated at 16 years old and was now working at an ammunition plant and rented a room from a family friend. So she had basically her own place. She was working at an ammunition plant and had already graduated at 16. So at least you get a feel for how much more mature 
kids were at a young age now, oh, you know, back yeah. then than now. Yeah, they were forced to grow up a lot quicker. Yeah, mm-hmm. they were implemented into society a lot quicker, no doubt. They had to. Yeah, I was talking to my my uh, my little cousin yesterday. She's like 14, and she was talking about how she's excited to get her, her permit and stuff, and she's been, you know, her dad's been letting her drive a little bit here and yeah. there. And I was like, don't most kids your age, don't, they don't even want to drive. And she's like, yeah, none of my friends even care. When they turn 16, they're not even interested in getting them. I'm like, how is that? Like, I could not oh wait God, to dude. turn. By 14, like her, I was already making my dad take me out and drive so that when I got my permit, I knew what I was doing. Oh, and then God, 16, yes. I was just driving everywhere. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Like I was driving, yeah, I was driving trucks and shit like around the property, 13, 12, 13. And then, mm-hmm. it, yeah, when I had my permit, and if I was going somewhere, my parents weren't driving. I was like, no, 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 let me drive. Let me drive. <laughs> and then I think it all comes back to dis- the lack of distractions. You know, I mean, nowadays kids, they're just so distracted by it. They don't, it's like they're so entertained all day already that it's like, yeah, driving, whatever. Yeah. It's like in the 40s, you get an example of like they had nothing, else, like you said, they had nothing else to do but drive around and find stuff to do. Right. You know? Yeah. Whereas now they're like driving. I can't look at my phone and drive at the same time. I mean, come on. How am I supposed to keep up with uh, TikTok and Snapchat right, and everything exactly. else if I'm driving around? I mean, texting is one thing, but I can't watch TikTok while I drive. That's just crazy. It's unsafe. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know what? If, they don't, if they're not, if they don't feel ready, then I don't want them on the road anyway. That's fine with Hell me. Hell yeah. We got too many people on the road anyways. Yep. Yep. So, uh, as we mentioned, Polly Ann and uh, Richard Griffin, we're going to be going on this uh, this date, and it was Saturday, March 23rd, 1946, when they had dinner at the Canary Cottage with Griffin's sister and her boyfriend. So it was another double date type situation, very similar to the first uh, crime that had occurred. Um, the couple then split ways. So same situation. They go on a double date, and the couples kind of split off and do their own thing. Richard and Polly Ann caught a movie, then caught a late-night snack at an all-night cafe. Once again, an all-night cafe. They left at about 2 a.m., these kids in the 40s, they're out all night, like into the morning. It was a regular thing. Yeah. Before taking Polly Ann home, Richard drove out to West 7th, past the city limits and onto a dirt road, a quiet secluded place near a marsh and facing a gravel pit. A few minutes after arriving, another car pulled up. Richard and Polly Ann figured it was surely another pair of lovers. There's not, so, there's not as much detail on this one, however, because we don't get eyewitness accounts, unfortunately, because the killer left no victims this time. Right. Richard was found in the car with his pants around his ankles, pockets turned out. He was fatally shot in the back of the head. Polly Ann was also fatally shot in the back of the head. However, she was shot on a blanket outside of the car before being dragged and placed back into the car, which would lead you to believe there was some sort of a sexual assault there. Why else would he yeah. you know, put her on a blanket outside of the car to kill her and then put her back in the car? It makes no sense. And you sense. know what you were talking about earlier about the killer being impotent? This is another sign. The fact that he attacks couples when they are in an intimate setting Mm -hmm. i think yeah he's like it's almost like he's taking out his anger and frustration that that they have a normal like sex life type of thing that he can't have yeah yeah exactly exactly it's just weird that he wants to strike then i know they're alone and they're out and in the secludedness but there's plenty of times to get people alone if you just wanted to kill somebody but killing someone during during an intimate situation like this i just it just feels so intentional doesn't it the way he's doing it yeah yeah Yep. Um, so at 9 a.m. that Sunday morning, a man found the gruesome scene in Richard's car and called police. It kind of, the car was there for, you know, people had passed it and stuff and didn't think much of it. It's just a car parked there and there, you could see that there was two people in it. Although, you know, once you got closer, you would have obviously seen that they weren't just sitting there, that they were deceased. But 
Sunday, unfortunately, turned out to be a rainy day, which made the investigation that much harder. The investigation was terribly carried out early on as well, which soon pointed out, uh, which was soon pointed out by a Texas Ranger who showed up to assist in the investigation. This is Texas, so you know you, you get the uh, the insertion of Texas Rangers, which always make things interesting. Uh-huh. Seems like we've seen that a few times in cases. Of course, and and now this is the second assault like this, so. They're showing up pretty early, in my opinion. I'm like, hell yeah. I'm kind of glad the Texas Rangers are there already. Yeah. Yeah, so this Texas Ranger that showed up pointed out to the police that they had been the first to the scene and that they didn't rope off the crime scene right away and and had destroyed all the goddamn evidence. (laughs) And Which is very true because when the first police got there... They they kind of let a bunch of looky loos wander around. There was pe- random people's footprints all over. There was people from town that had gotten wind. They'd followed the police cars. You know, there's like five or ten police cars. You know, rushing somewhere, and people just kind of on a Sunday morning, they're like, "What's going on over there?" And they just kind of follow it over there. And there, there was just random people who had stories about, "Yeah, I, I went over there and I saw the crime scene and this and that." And it's, it's like that's. It should have been immediately like the people should have been kept far away, right? And it should have been roped off, and and every bit of evidence should have been preserved, especially when you're dealing with rain as well, and a seemingly random set of murders. There's no way this is a murder suicide. They were both victims were shot in the back of the head at the base of the skull, right? Um, so this is clearly a random, some sort of a, a, a intentional homicide, double homicide here. Um, they did determine that the murder weapon was a 32 caliber um, and likely a Colt automatic pistol. A few weeks later, the killer would strike again and send Texarkana into an utter panic. So this is this is the th- the third crime, which really, as far as the police uh, thought, would be the second crime because, like I said, they still haven't really fully connected the first one. They still they still thought that that was just kind of like a personal attack on uh, Mary and Jimmy, mm-hmm. you know, that had gotten beaten with the pipe and stuff. Though they still didn't really connect that one yet. Had they, then it would already be in a frenzy after the second one. But this is still the 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 one we just went over as far as the public's concerned and the police. This is the first crime, um, and it was this next one that sent this place into a complete frenzy. So the story of the third attack of the Phantom Killer started on the evening of April thirteenth, nineteen forty six, when a local dance band known as the Rhythm Airs finished its traditional Saturday night performance at the Veterans for Veterans of Foreign Wars Club located at West 4th and Oak Streets in downtown Texarkana. This is such a 40s thing, the Rhythm Airs. I know. Um, for the you know, for the Veterans of Foreign Wars Club. Like there's there's a club for that. I just love that they're a local dance band. Like what does that even mean? Are they like right. doo-wop or And they have they this? literally have like young like 12 and 13-year-old girls playing in this band oh. in the middle of the night. Like that's how this crime starts is it's you know, the victim here, Betty Joe. Um, so th- then how this happens is because World War II caused such a male shortage, apparently. Right. The band's leader, Jerry Atkins, recruited four f- females. One was alto sax- saxophone player, 15-year-old Joe, Betty Joe Booker, and you know several other young girls. I'm sure that's the reason that this Jerry Atkins did it. I'm, I'm looking a little sideways at you like, uh-huh, that's the reason. Now. You got all these like 12, 13, 15-year-old girls yeah. playing in your band He's, at 1 in the morning downtown. Yeah. Like, just come on. That's just dangerous. He's looking a little sus. To me right now. Yeah. yeah. But all this stuff was a little more normal back then. As a Texas high school uh, junior, Betty Jo enjoyed dancing. She excelled academically and set her sights on becoming a medical technician. As the band members readied to call it a night, they collected their equipment and started to head home sometime around 1.30 in the morning, sa- uh, Sunday, April 14th. Betty Jo, um, rather than you know trying to find a ride, she had received a ride from 16-year-old Paul Martin, a former classmate 
Um, he'd come into town. He, he lived a little ways away in uh, Kilgore, and, but he made these frequent trips back to uh, Texarkana where he knew people and, and he really liked Betty Jo and he planned, he planned out this whole night for them, although it didn't go according to plan because he didn't realize she was going to be playing in this band until 1.30 in the morning. He wanted to take her to a mo- the midnight movie and all this different stuff. Right. But being a cool kid, everybody liked Paul Martin, the 16-year-old. Uh, he, he sat around and waited for her to finish her performance, sat around and waited for her until 1.30 in the morning and kind of blew off other people. Um, and so he picks her up after the performance and uh, she actually had to go take home her saxophone, but before she took home her saxophone and they could get their night started, they decided to pull over in a secluded area north of Spring Lake, or an, in an area north of Spring Lake Park. So they headed to the Spring Lake Park area to, you know, get some private time together. Paul Martin was the youngest of four sons. He moved with his family's uh, ice business to smack over Arkansas to Kilgore and East, and East Exit. East Texas oil town. They spent a lot of time in Texarkana too. His mom loved Texarkana and he'd spent a lot of time there growing up. That's how he met Betty Joe and he would go back and forth uh, to Texarkana a lot. Okay. And so Betty Joe and Paul knew each other way back. They'd known each other for 10 years uh, when they both lived on the Arkansas side of Texarkana during their grade school years until Paul moved away to Kilgore. Um, Betty Joe eventually moved to the Texas side while Paul spent some time at Mississippi Military Academy before returning to Kilgore and occasionally visiting, visiting Texarkana. Uh, so after her gig playing saxophone, as I mentioned, Paul picked her up. They headed. They were supposed to go drop off her expensive saxophone. You know how that is right. back in the days when you had you're in like orchestra and stuff. And it's like the first thing you do, your parents make you come straight home and put your <laughs> right um, put away your violin or whatever. Right, because when you quit playing that thing, they want to resell that shit. They don't want to get messed up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. So on their way to drop off the saxophone, they made this quick stop at Spring Lake Park, and that would be the last they were ever they were ever seen alive. Um, five hours later, Martin's body was discovered, um, and uh, Betty Jo Booker's body would not be found for another six hours until they did basically a manhunt for it and uh, started searching the area. Um, so Paul was found lying on a dirt road about a mile from where his car was found. He had been shot four times, once in the face and once in the neck, one detective found a date book belonging to Paul Martin in some bushes by his parked car. Aside from the date book, few clues were found. Now, this date book plays a huge role, a huge role in uh, identifying a, a later key suspect in these crimes. And I, I believe it's a big reason why I think I know who the killer is in these crimes yes. is because of this date book. If the detective isn't lying, and I've seen no reason why he would lie about this, but no. this date book, he, this detective basically took the date book and didn't tell anyone he had it. He, he remembered where he had found it, stuffed it in his pocket, and, and just basically wanted that as like his ace in the hole when it comes, to t- comes time to where they finally find someone, a suspect, he can be like, you know, he can connect the date book, and like that's something that only he knows and the killer knows is that date book because he didn't tell anyone else about it. And that letter comes out comes to a payoff when they talk to a you know a suspect in this case and someone close to him. Yep, that was smart. Um, it took a search, yeah, very very smart. Yeah, it took a search party to uh, finally find Betty Joe's body in a patch of nearby woods. She was fully clothed and had been shot twice, once in the heart and once in the head. Uh, like with Richard Griffin and Pollyann Moore, three weeks before the Slayer had used the same type of pistol, a thirty-two caliber Colt. Official reports would say that Betty Joe had been raped. And see, now, I think- initially, they didn't think that she'd been sexually assaulted because she was fully dressed. Um, she still had a sanitary pad on. Um, but when they did, when they dove deeper and they actually 
you know, had the medical examiner, you know, they, they basically were able to determine that she had seminal secretion inside of her. And when they inspected um, her date that night, he, you know, they swapped him, him and they were able to determine he had not had sex. So she had, she had definitely been raped that night. Wow. Now, what I was going to say is um, you can understand here why this case is the one that sent everyone into a panic, right? Because it so closely matches up with the one before it. The same caliber mm-hmm. pistol. Um, the, the couple was found almost the same way and all that. But that doesn't yep. mean that the first one wasn't connected. You know what I mean? That He could have just been trying out different methods at that time. Oh, for sure. I mean, we've seen it, and that's why that's why the the victim in the first set of crimes, you know, Mary. Yeah, she was she, at this at this point now that there's been two other separate crimes following her attack. She's screaming at the police, basically like, "This is the same guy that attacked us," and you guys are ignoring this, and you're saying that you know we knew the killer. They, they were like literally accusing Jimmy and Mary of like, "You guys know who this is. You're just not telling us out of fear or whatever for whatever reason. You're protecting this person." Mm. It's ridiculous. So not only are you not taken seriously as a victim, you're looking at as a co- co-conspirator. And that's mm-hmm. got to be frustrating, especially when you're laying in yep. the hospital with skull fractures and you've been and you've been raped, you know? Yep. Mm. Yep. The 40s, man. Crazy. Yeah. Um so yeah, the, the the this is clearly the same person who had perpetrated these latest two crimes on these these young couples in a lover's lane situation same type of pistol was used very similar mo strangely betty joe's saxophone was not found initially um and how it was found much 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 later like buried in like it was already like eroding and stuff but so you know police initially put out the word to like local pawn shops and stuff like that to keep an eye out for anybody turning in a saxophone for money so i'm guessing they found it to fruition they found it just thrown out into the woods somewhere or something Exactly. Oh, okay. They found it somewhere where just the, 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 this crime scene was kind of sprawled out, you know, like they didn't find Betty Joe for six hours. Right. After finding uh, <clears throat> after they found uh, Paul Martin, which le- and Paul Martin was a mile away from his car. Right. And so this got kind of messy. It's like almost like they ran away from the killer, killer hunted him down type of or thing. Or maybe just like the very first time, maybe he told him to run. You know, that gives yeah, even more evidence that. that it links to that very first case. Maybe he did tell him to run and he wanted a to give chase a little bit. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I find strange is that he's sexually assaulting these girls, but then he's leaving them fully. Dr- it's almost like he's ashamed that he's, that that's his motive, you know, in a huh. sense. And it kind of makes sense later on when you find out that he, if it's the, if it's the perpetrator, I think so. The main suspect in this case, which we're going to talk about later, if it is him, he had a woman with him on most of these, if not all, he had some sort of an accomplice, and maybe there was a, a level of like shame that he didn't want her to think that this was his motive, or maybe he didn't care. I don't know. But like the fact that he, like in this case, you know, he raped her, and then he left, and then he fully dressed her back up like she didn't, like he didn't do it. Kind of, kind of bizarre. Or maybe he didn't fully undress her in the first place. Yeah. You know. Well, then how would semen have gotten in her? Well, she could be wearing a dress, man. She be wearing a dress so. or a skirt or anything. Yeah. Most likely, she was probably wearing a dress. Actually, she just came from. A, I think she was wearing a dress with a jacket over it. But I think the jacket was back on, and there was a, there were they found a leaf between the jacket and the dress, which led them to believe that she had been undressed at some point. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So could be. Yep. So four deaths in three weeks. Two young couples slain. The town of Texarkana went into a hysterical panic state at this point. 
The case would also lead not to not only the both Twin City Police Departments, but the Sheriff's Office of both Miller and Bowie counties, along with the Texas Rangers, the Arkansas State Police, and even the FBI to probe the Texarkana area uh, by early spring of 1946. So it becomes chaotic. All these different uh, police departments and jurisdictions, all, you know, FBI, everybody's getting involved. You imagine it's probably just chaos. Um, then Miller County Chief Deputy Tillman Johnson said of this period, quote, we were constantly getting calls, mostly at night, about prowlers. People would call it about any noise, heard it all. And it's the same old thing like we saw with uh, Richard Ramirez, where, like, in L.A. County, everybody was just, like, closing their homes up, like, tight. They all had guns. They were all paranoid, shooting at any weird noises. Like, there was a lot of cases. There were, the book went over several stories during this time in Texarkana of people shooting at neighbors and stuff like because they oh, pull yeah. up to their drive you know, they'd pull a little close to their home in the middle of the night and like who the hell's that and just start shooting yeah yeah there, there was a time where like if you went to someone's house and it was dark you had to like shout to identify yourself because mm-hmm. if they didn't recognize you they were coming out guns blazing yeah <laughs> one time a quick little funny story i had i had a roommate who was my my best friend growing up but at my first house, he became a roommate where he paid me like 300 bucks a month to have a room there and stuff, but he was never there. He was always at some girl's house or whatever. Yeah. And like, so he would like, and this is the time when I was living with my wife and uh, he would pop in like once a month in the middle of the night to go to sleep. And that's all we would ever see him. And so it got to the point where I was like, he would freak me out. Like, and one time uh, I heard someone walking around my house in the middle of the night and I actually was like pointing my gun at the hallway and it was just, it was just my, you know, Dustin, my roommate. And he's like, whoa. I'm like, I just had to be sure. You know, I don't know. You're never around. And all of a sudden, like, someone walking around my house in the middle of the night. Right. He's like, I mean, what? I figured it was him. Yeah. You know, and I wasn't, I was, I had my finger nowhere near the trigger, but just in case, I was just like, yeah. I don't want to get caught off guard here. Well, I mean, to be fair, that's what he gets. He should have called or texted or been like, hey, man, I might pop in later tonight, you know? He would just do little shit, you know. Roommates, they get on you get you get on your nerves after a while. He would just do little things that would annoy me, right? Like right. leaving time on the microwave, <laughs> like instead of like clearing it off to where you could see the clock again, he would like leave like four <laughs> seconds on there. I'm like, dude, yeah, you son of a stupid bitch. shit. I was being petty, but at the same time, it was just annoying. No, it is, it is, and you you feel like it, it don't it doesn't matter uh, how good of friends you are when you first move in. It, it's just always one roommate seems to be taking too many liberties. You know, and yeah. and the other one just doesn't agree with it, or maybe one pays more than the other, and then you're like, "Hey, that's my microwave. Clear the fucking thing." You know, like, right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. You just get it's it's just different than living with family who you have to love, right? When you got a roommate, it's yeah. different. That's why you should live with a woman or a woman or a man or whoever your spouse is before you marry them as well, because yeah. you got to really learn the their little idiosyncrasies and little things that are going to drive you crazy and learn whether you can live with those or not. Exactly. We've talked about it before. Yep. So, yeah, uh, at this time, it's just basically a frenzy in Texarkana. Everybody's worried that they're going to become the next victim. The Texarkana uh, uh, local news media realized quickly that they needed a handle to to really get all the uh, frenzy even worse. You know how oh, that course. works. They dubbed him the Phantom. Oh, um, and this is a quote from the book that why this is a perfect handle for this killer. Uh, I think the author came up with this quote. He said, quote, the killer appeared seemingly out of nowhere, left only death and faded into the darkness like an apparition. Hmm. Pretty okay. much at that time, that's how you would view this, you know. Pretty much. And, and a, lot of, a lot of the success goes back to the fact that this was the 40s and police 
methods and their ability technology wise was almost nothing. Like if the killer didn't leave a perfect fingerprint somewhere, right, or a witness, good luck. You know. Yep. And also, and then like we talked about earlier, you have a lot of the state lines and jurisdictions of uh, police mm-hmm. stations and stuff. You have you have a lot of uh, feuding and arguing in between police forces. There, it's not a whole lot of working together here. Like like we it saw earlier. It was a perfect earlier. storm. It was a yeah. It was a lot of the success also goes back to the fact that this was Texarkana, where it's kind of a clusterfuck, where it's two cities divided. Right. You know, they, they view themselves as two different cities, but really they're one city. That's part of the problem. Yeah, it is. That is. So, in the April 16th edition of the Texarkana Daily News, a, head, a heading read, quote, Phantom Killer eludes officers as investigation of slayings pressed. The front page story was continued with on page two with the title, quote, Phantom Slayer eludes police. So, this is where you see them pushing this, this uh, phantom mm-hmm. character as the perpetrator. The naming of the killer only added to the panic and mystery. People armed themselves and were quick to shoot. Police routinely parked unmarked cars at isolated lover's lane locations with dummies inside and officers staked out nearby with no success. So they would sit there with <laughs> a couple dummies in a car waiting. Hey, it's not a bad idea. It's not a it's bad not. idea. I'm surprised they didn't That's... use like undercover officers to do that. I know they did on the streets. I know that there were some officers that dressed up as couples and whatnot. Um, mm-hmm. and tried to look younger. But I'm surprised they didn't just go ahead and go the extra mile and put a couple officers in a car, but I guess they were afraid that someone could sneak up and shoot them from behind. Absolutely. Yeah. If you if you let your guard down for a second, right. this dude was sneaky enough to walk up and just shoot you. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. You can't, you can't be putting people in danger like that. So a reward for Capture Fund got donations from all over, different businesses and, and people that were just in fear of this situation started donating to it, and it soon reached over $6,000, which would be over 70000 in today's dollars. So quite a, quite a reward if you could uh, give information leading to the capture of this person. Oh, yeah, people were the terrified. Phantom, you know, the Phantom. In the first week of May, the Phantom Killer attacked what are thought to be his last victims. So as this frenzies, it, they, the, and they're starting to track now. They're thinking it's going to occur either two to four weeks, you know, each time. And so it, it, this time it went a little longer, and people were starting to relax a little bit. And then he strikes again. And it was this one was outside of his mold. It wasn't two lovers in a car and a lovers lane situation. This was a farmhouse, seemingly in the middle of nowhere, and just completely random. Well, On because Friday, of the, May thir- you know. People think that, oh, maybe this wasn't connected at all or whatever. Some people argue that, but maybe it is, and they just had to change the MO so much because of so much yeah. information coming out. I mean, you guys did dub him a name and also made mm-hmm. it made it news that police officers were parking unmarked cars at isolated lovers' lanes and all this different stuff. 100%. Right? I mean, and the guy's not an you, idiot. I think this is... I think this is the killer, you know, changing his MO intentionally yes. because he's reading the newspapers and he's hearing the talk around town and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, he changes the weapon that he uses and he changes the method of finding victims here. Yeah, that's not yeah, too far of a stretch. Different. It's not too far of a stretch at all. No. So on Friday, May 3rd, sometime before 9 p.m., Virgil Starks, age 37, a farmer and welder, was in his modest ranch-style house on a 500-acre farm off Highway 67 East, almost 10 miles northeast of Texarkana. Virgil turned on his favorite weekly radio show, and his wife, Katie, age 36, gave him a heating pad for his sore back. He sat in his armchair. This is, man, this is really messed up. He's just really in his his home, sitting there in his favorite armchair, watching TV. I know. And shot. 
It's fucked up, man. If As you're not sitting... safe in your own armchair, where are you safe? God damn it. But there's no better place to go either at the same time. Right. <laughs> it's like it's probably where he thought he was always going to die anyway. It's probably not in that way. Yeah. But uh, right. he's like, 40 years from now, this is where I want to go, right here in my lazy boy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So as he sat in his armchair in the living room, uh, which was just off the kitchen and bedroom, while Katie was in her bedroom laying on the bed in her nightgown, she heard something from the backyard and asked Virgil to turn the TV down. Seconds later, while Virgil was reading in the May 3rd edition of the Texarkana Gazette, oh, that's messed up. He might have been reading the story about the Phantom. Honestly, the Texarkana Gazette is who named him, who dubbed him the Phantom. Yeah. He may have been reading about the Phantom. Oh, I didn't even realize that. That's may messed have. up. Um, so as he's sitting there reading that and watching TV, two shots were fired into the back of his head from a close double window three feet away. Oh. A closed double window three feet away. So this killer was just behind him. Oh. Super creepy. Man, what a terrible Kate. placement for your chair, though. Like, always place your chair where you can see the windows and door, right? Like, you don't want to have... Yeah, at least put, like, that tint that mirrors on the outside to where yeah. the killer can only see himself from the outside. You know what? Like, I got a couch... One of my couches in my living room sits right in front of a double window, but there's nowhere else to put mm. it. But when I sit there, I close the curtains. I can't fucking sit there. Yeah. Like, I'm, like, in the right. middle of the day, I can. You know, I'll kind of sit sideways, and also my dog is outside on the porch, so I'm not really too worried about shit. But still, I, I just can't bring myself to sit in front of an open window at night like that. I just can't do it, man. Not not. Yeah, even at even if you think it, even if you're not worried about a killer, I'm worried just as much about someone enjoying my my cable for free. I don't want yeah. them watching I want TV. The, I pay for. Yeah, don't be looking over my shoulder watching freaking Umbrella Academy. I pay or for this the entertainment. Yeah, get your own Netflix account. I got enough people mooching off mine. <laughs> exactly. I'm already carrying <laughs> enough people. So um, back to the the not funny part of this. So Katie did not hear the gunshots. Instead, she heard what sounded like the breaking of glass. So she didn't hear the, she heard the glass breaking, which I guess makes sense. If you're inside the home, you're going to hear the glass break more than the gunshot. Right. Um, She thought Virgil had dropped something and went to see what happened. As she entered the doorway into the living room, she saw Virgil stand up and then subtly slump back into his chair. She saw blood. Then she saw him... um, she ran to him and lifted up his head. When she realized he was dead, she ran to the phone to call the police. Now, this killer didn't didn't think real. I'm sure really believed that this this farmhouse out kind of out in the middle of nowhere outside of town wouldn't have a phone. This was very rare for uh, you know a, a home out of outside of town to have a phone. Okay. During the late late 40s, however, they did. She had a crank wall phone. Uh-uh. Um, and she, as she's trying to crank this phone and get it going, she was shot two times. Um, in the face from the same window. One bullet entered her right cheek and exited behind her left ear. The other went just below her lip, breaking her jaw and splintering out several teeth before lodging into her tongue. She got about as lucky as you could get for someone who got shot in the fa- face twice from a close range. She, the, Neither of these were lethal shots. They they obviously did damage and were very painful and you know going to be scarring and everything else, but those two shots alone are not enough to kill her. She dropped to her knees, but soon managed to get back onto her feet. She ran to get a pistol from the li- from the living room, but she was unfortunately blinded by her own blood. Uh, she heard the killer tearing loose the rusted screen wire on the back porch. She thought she was going to be killed for sure, so she stumbled down toward her bedroom near the front of the house to leave a note. Meanwhile, the killer ran to the back of the house and made his way up the steps into the side screen. This is seriously like a horror movie, dude. I know, right? I was just thinking... I can't believe she's thinking about leaving a note. I would just be trying to get out any way I could and run mm-hmm. to the closest. But, I mean, she's been shot in the face twice, and she, now she's hearing the killer coming in, and it's just like, 
I can see where she thought it was just over. You but know, if you could, I'd be trying to get to the gun. There's a gun somewhere in the house. That'd be what I'm trying to yeah, get to. Yeah, seriously, I was about to say, if you can see enough to write a note, you can see enough to break a window and get out or find a gun. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. So she heard the killer coming through the kitchen window, so she turned and ran down the dining room, through the bedroom, down a hallway, through another bedroom, and into the living room and out the front door, leaving behind a virtual river of blood and teeth throughout the house and across the street. Barefoot and still in her blood-soaked nightgown, she ran across the street to her sister and brother-in-law's house. Because no one was home, she ran another 50 yards to A.V. Prater's house. house. You know, old A.V. Prater, that's the guy you need to get. He comes out, immediately fires a shot into the air to scare off the killer and also to alert his neighbor, the other neighbor, Elmer Taylor. Now that Elmer and Prater are on the case, this this killer has no chance. chance. Yeah, so Prater called to Taylor to bring his car because Mr. and Mrs. Starks had been shot. Taylor, along with Mr. and Mrs. Prater and their baby, rode with Mrs. Starks to the hospital. Upon their arrival to the hospital, doctors determined that although she lost a considerable amount of blood, she showed no signs of going into shock and her heart rate remained normal. Miller County Sheriff uh, W.E. Davis questioned Mrs. Starks on the operating room table. The news the next morning was printed on the front page, uh, Saturday, May 4th, reading, quote, Murder Rock City again, farmer slain, wife wounded. And the chaos would commence yet again in Texarkana. Now, this is the one crime scene where actually some stuff was left behind by the killer, some clues, and an actual piece of physical evidence from the killer. Three clues were found at the scene. The first was was the caliber of bullets. The second was a flashlight found in the hedge underneath the window that the Starks were shot from. The last clue was a bloody was bloody footprints around the house, shoe prints on the kitchen floor, and smudged fingerprints in other places. After the flashlight was thoroughly examined, there were no fingerprints found, and there was not much they could do about it. They found that it did. It was kind of a rare flashlight that came from a, one specific hardware store in Texarkana. Okay. But when they asked the owner of the hardware store and the people that worked there, none of them could remember specifically, you know, who bought the flashlight. Of course not. Other, I mean, that's, you know, no one, no one suspicious had bought it or that whatever. That shit never so. works out. When you go back, it's like, who'd you sell no. this to? That I'm like, come on, right. man. You can't. Most it's a fucking flashlight, bro. I don't right. know. Most people, <laughs> a lot of people buy flashlights. Yeah, most people can't remember what they had for breakfast yesterday. When you really, when you really sit and think about it, you know, when you watch true crime all the time, you're like. How can you not remember what you did that day? That's so suspicious. But then you try to remember what you did like last Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Impossible. It's almost impossible. Unless you unless you had something like really interesting happen or something out of the ordinary. But if it was a normal, quote unquote, normal Tuesday for you, it's almost impossible to remember the details. Your brain just just yeah. files it away like every other Tuesday. The rare occasions where this does work is when it's like a person comes in, they pay with cash for Let's say a rope, some lime, uh, a shovel, uh-huh. and you're like, okay, some this duct is clearly tape. A, like a murder kit. Yeah, <laughs> some duct tape, razor blades. Yeah, some duct tape <laughs> for sure. Then yeah. you might, you know, the person might remember that. Right. But a bug- just a flashlight, not so right. much. If they got like a buggy full of the ingredients to meth, I might be like, yeah, I remember that guy. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> now, Sheriff, Sheriff Davis stated that although the murder could not be direct, directly linked to the Phantom Killer because the caliber was a twenty two. It is possible that the killer is one and the same, and they changed their, you know, MO, as we mentioned. Those who had been driving in the area near the time of the slaying, along with several other men found in the vicinity, were picked up for questioning. Theories spread widely about the phantom, phantom killer's identity. The killer's targeting of couples and lack of other identifiable motives, such as burglary or revenge, led many in the area to believe that the killer was some sort of a sex maniac. Yeah, and the, and the rumor mill began about all these crazy 
you know, sexual things that the killer would do to the people with no no basis in fact. Right. The reward fund now, uh, following this latest case, had surpassed $7,000 following the latest attack. Suspects in the area included a University of Arkansas freshman who committed suicide in 1948, an escaped German prisoner of war, and an L.A. resident who believed that he may have committed the crimes while in a coma. <laughs> so the police during this time are basically picking up any male that's alone in town, right. period. <laughs> like anybody, any dude walking around, they're snatching yeah, they're him up. Yeah, they're grasping at straws. They have no idea. Vigorously interviewing him. Yeah. They have no idea what's going on right now. You know what, though? If, if yeah. he did a uh, – this is a little check in the he changed motives category – but you know, going to the twenty-two pistol, it makes a lot more sense if you're going to be in, if you're going to attack people in homes, especially if they have neighbors, right? Oh yeah, it's a lot quieter. Yeah, exactly, a lot quieter than the what yeah. the thirty-two is that what was used before? I think it was a or a yeah. thirty-eight. No, it was a thirty-two. Thirty-two. So yeah, a lot quieter than the thirty-two, and that also explains mm-hmm. and also pretty accurate from a distance too, like yeah. a twenty-two. Mid-range, like obviously not like long distance, but like mid-range, it's it's really accurate. It does not a lot of. It's such a small round that it travels through the air really well without bullet dropping stuff. Right, right, and that also explains why Miss um, Starks was able to be shot in the face multiple times and still live, because those twenty twos, yeah, they're not gonna they're not gonna leave that big of wounds in the lower part of the face. Now, if she got shot in the skull and the brain, that's a different story. If it penetrated the skull into the brain, right. yeah, she would be done. Exactly. For. Now the main suspect that we're gonna really dive, you know, go all through, comb through the facts on this guy uh, would soon be located thanks to some really savvy police work. So because the attack started on February 22nd, the late Max Tackett, who at the time was an Arkansas State Police Trooper and close colleague of Tillman Johnson, noticed that each time the Phantom Killer struck, a car was reported stolen at one location and abandoned at another. Now car theft. I have to say, it was very, very common during this time. This is a time where literally you just hot wiring. You could teach. I could teach my three year old son how to hot wire a car back then. <laughs> it was literally you disconnect the two wires, you put them right. together, boom, the car starts. Right, right. And car theft was so frequent back then. But they did notice a trend in that you know in the area where these crimes were occurring, there was a car stolen and then abandoned. And the, the you know the the trooper was wondering like why would the killer take you know steal the car and then immediately ditch it for another car like. Are you, is he is it, it's it seems a little odd because it's like oh maybe he found a better car to steal uh-huh. or whatever but it just seems like you're raising your risk by stealing a car and then abandoning it for a different car that seems like someone who's got something to hide um, oh yeah more so than just your average car thief right right I see what you're saying I see what you're saying uh, whereas a regular car thief would just steal a car and drive out of town okay. yeah exactly or sell it chop it whatever right, right. do something with okay. it instead of just ditching it. Police eventually tracked down one of the stolen cars that you know that were suspicious, according to uh, Max Tackett. It was found abandoned at a local downtown parking lot on June 28, 1946. A stakeout of the area eventually led to the arrest of a 21-year-old woman named Peggy Swinney. Her new husband, Yule Lee Swinney, would become and remain the prime suspect in the slayings. So they 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 stake out this car that they they truly they already know that this person. Um, he ditched out on some rent and he had stolen a car and was involved in like ditching these cars around the times of crimes and stuff. So they're staking it out. Um, and instead of, you know, the guy coming out, this woman named Peggy comes out, this 21 year old woman. She said that she had just gotten married in Shreveport, but her new husband was currently in Atlanta, Texas, trying to sell another stolen car. Homer Carter, the (laughs) chief of police in Atlanta told Tackett that a man had tried selling a stolen car to one of his citizens, 
um, and Tackett asked the citizen. So they they found this citizen whom this you know whom this uh, Yule Lee Swinney had tried to sell this stolen car to, and he was trying. Yule Lee at the time when he was trying to sell this stolen car to Homer was trying to act like it was legit, like he had the um, he had the, like the uh, title title and everything. Okay. But when Homer was like, oh, well, you know, as soon as you get the title, you know, hit, you know, give me a call and I'll you know we, we can work something out. And the guy's like, okay, and just took right, off. Right, right. And Homer knew right away it was a stolen car. So the police of chief, chief of police um, got with this Homer character um, and Tackett asked the citizen if he would recognize the suspect, but the man said that he would not. Tackett noticed that the citizen had a distinct appearance. This guy had a, you know, he was a very recognizable guy, a cowboy hat and boots. And Tackett, in a very savvy mood, said, uh, move said, uh, you know, you wouldn't recognize him, but he would recognize you because, you know, he he didn't, you know, Ewell Lee would not want to see this guy that he tried to sell a stolen car to again. He's going to be like, oh, shit, that's, this guy found out that that car was stolen or whatever. And so they figured that if they kind of follow this guy around to, air, you know, really heavily trafficked areas in town, um, have him walk into different locations. If Yule Lee is in there, even if the guy, you know, even if uh, uh, Homer Carter didn't recognize him, this person, Yule Lee's going to try and run out of there and, and get away from right. him, not wanting to be connected with that stolen car. So Tackett asked the citizen if he'd be willing to walk with him into several public places. Tackett had the idea that the suspect would not want to see him and would try to avoid him. And amazingly, this worked. On a Saturday in July, Tackett walked into the Arkansas Motor Coach bus station on Front Street near Union Station with the citizen, Homer. Uh, Tackett saw a man run out of the back of the building. <laughs> Tackett then chased him down and caught him in a fire escape trying to hide. The man was Yuli Swinney. Oh, that is too much of a coincidence, isn't it? Yeah, It's just real. like, if you, if you weren't suspicious of this guy, you are now, like already. And we're just getting started on why we suspect Yuli Swinney. And it, it was immediately as soon as he gets into the car, he starts saying stuff like, oh, shit, are they going to give me the death penalty? And the police are like, dude, you stole a car. Yeah, relax. Like, why, would you, why would you get the death like, penalty? Yeah, oh, so he starts saying oh, shit yeah, like that. Really I don't have no idea himself. why. <laughs> don't listen to me. Right. Uh, when's the parole hearing? Yeah, and then he quickly realized, like, oh, maybe they don't really know that I'm the phantom killer. Right. Like, and then he's like, <laughs> he's like, oh, shit. And then he just really quickly shuts up. He's like, fuck, I just incriminated myself. <laughs> what a dumbass. Oh, yeah. God. <clears throat> So let's let's talk about Yuli Swinney. Let's. We've got a lot about him um, growing up. So he became the main phantom killer suspect when he was 29 years old with this capture for stolen cars that we just went over. Uh-huh. He had a criminal record that stretched back as far as 1929 when he was 12 years old. At the time of his arrest in July 1946, he'd been out of the penitentiary barely more than six months. He'd served time in reform school, two penitentiaries, uh, and federal prisons in Oklahoma, Georgia, Georgia and Kansas. Crimes ranging from theft, burglary, counterfeiting, and strong-arm robbery. Born February 9th, 1917 in Arkansas. He shares a birthday with Joe Pesci and Michael B. Jordan. Oh, shit. Couple of legends. Yeah, seriously. Legends in their own right right there for sure. What the fuck is so funny about me? (laughs) (laughs) And then Michael B. Jordan and Black Panther. Holy shit. Amazing. And I loved the uh, the Creed movies as well. Fantastic. Yes. Good, Good point. Underrated. Yes, indeed. Um, his father, Huel Lee Swinney, uh, was, his father was Stanley Swinney, uh, who was a Baptist minister that struggled with alcoholism, wasn't the greatest father. His mother, Myrtle Swinney, um, and he was the fifth of seven children. He fell into trouble early in life and was never wanted by his parents and was largely ignored, according to his siblings and many other witnesses at the time. 
one story emerged of a night where Yule was forced to stay outside on a cold night while the rest of his family ate inside. He pleaded with his sister, quote, can't she just get me a biscuit or something? Damn. Kind of gives you a little insight into a pretty brutal upbringing if you were not wanted by your parents and they have all these other siblings that they give attention to and you're just kind of the outcast. Yeah, no doubt. You know what else, though? I just Google imaged uh, Mr. UL here, and he does look like he could have a darker complexion. Like he he does yeah. oh for yeah. sure he was outside a lot he had his, he had kind of like dark leathery skin yes he could have absolutely been that killer man he could have easily been mistaken yeah mm-hmm. as a dark as a dark skinned person especially if he had a if he had a mask on interesting mm-hmm. okay uh, oh this is the guy in my opinion this anyway, is our guy we'll get through a million yeah. reasons why I believe so but mainly the um, his new newlywed wife that he had just married basically incriminated him in every fucking crime and they were located in the area at the time and he's admitting to stealing cars in the areas at the time these crimes occurring and everything else yeah in 1926 yule's parents divorced and custody of the children was divided up yule ended up with his father who moved around constantly town to town and you would be caught stealing candy from a store at a very young age but that charge didn't stick the first charge that he would have on his record and his first you know, appearance on, in the newspapers would be on September 25th, 1929, when he was only 12 years old. He he was basically caught as the uh, the the figurehead of a child racketeering gang called the Fagans. Oh my God! They would be they were known for stealing stolen goods around town uh, and selling them to a junk shop in the city. So he was running this racketeering Dude, gang at 12 years listen, old. Listen, people grew up quick back then. Like we said, no doubt. <laughs> I mean, people grew up quick in relationships, but these, I mean, just think if these people, if these kids were mature enough to get married at 13, 14, I mean, they're mature enough to run gangs, you know? Yep. I mean, Can you imagine you're like 14, you're already divorced. You smoke cigarettes. You were already like <laughs> in prison for running a gang and shit. That's just how it was. You're like then. sitting on your front porch with a <laughs> bottle of shine. Just fucking spitting uh, in a damn. He had a, he later had a tattoo on his forearm that said revenge. As well. Oh, really? Little fact. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, Yule later claimed that uh, time spent with his mother, he had been abused by many, uh, one of his many stepfathers. Mm. Um, ten days after his 15th birthday in 1932, Yule was arrested in Texarkana for burglary at a school building. He was sent to a boys' reformatory in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Then on January 4th, 1935, the Secret Service held him for attempting to pass counterfeit nickels. Wow. Charges were dismissed due to him being only a month shy of adulthood, technically still a minor. However, that didn't stop him from going right back to it because then in July he was arrested again for possessing counterfeit coins and turned over to, back over to the Secret Service. This time they said, kid, you know what? You had a chance. We let you go when you were 17, and now you go ahead and do it right again. So this time you're getting two years in federal prison Good. in Oklahoma. Good. How, then in 1937, what were you going to say? How are you counterfeiting nickels at... Dude, nickel was nickel was a was real money. No, back no, then. I no, I get it. It's like counterfeiting twenties now, but but what yeah. I'm saying is like how like they were made out of real silver I know, that's back a good, in the that's day. That's a good point. Seems like it'd be a, more of a pain in the ass than it's worth. Yeah, I feel like it would be harder to counterfeit some metal, especially if it's real silver, than it would be to counterfeit yeah. a, a a bill. But then again, kids walking around with dollars then would have been a red flag in itself. Don't you think? Yeah, no. You know doubt. what I'm saying? Like if a kid was yeah. walking around with that's 20 probably bucks how he got in caught pocket. in the racketeering gang. Yeah, in the racketeering gang, the Fagans, he was flashing cash around and smoking cigarettes and stuff, and that's how they busted yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, because that would just be a red flag in itself. Twelve year old with you know <clears throat> twenty, thirty bucks on him is like, holy shit. Yeah. Yep. 
Yeah, so he does his two years in federal prison in Oklahoma. Then in 1937, he was picked up by the sheriff's office in Louisiana for counterfeiting yet again. He was sentenced to three years in Leavenworth. We know about Leavenworth. Just think about this. uh, If he got caught three times for counterfeiting, how many times did he get away with that shit? So many people (laughs) in that area had some some fake-ass nickels, you know? We've talked about criminals that work harder. At, they they work really hard yeah. at being a criminal, and it's like, dude, you you would just succeed if you just, <laughs> you know, just went into business right. or something. But that's just the point of it, man. They they're contrarians. They don't want to do it that way. They want to do something. Yep. They want to do something. They want to do it their own yep. way. They don't want to answer to nobody. Yeah, he was then arrested in 1940 for parole violation. This series of crimes and prison time continued on a loop until his latest capture in 1946, where he now became the main suspect in the Texarkana killings and may have been the phantom himself. After being placed in a police car bound for the Miller County Courthouse, Johnson recalled that Yule Swinney turned to him and said, quote, Hell, I know that you want me for more than just stealing cars. Meanwhile, Swinney's wife, Peggy, decided to give several detailed descriptions and statements uh, to police about the Booker Martin murders. And she goes on a series of just giving detailed accounts uh, that would point you to believe that her new husband, Yule, was the, was the phantom killer. And she initially, she's trying to protect herself by keeping her, you know, her story where you know, Yule's killing these people and she's somewhere else every right. time, except later on she eventually incriminates herself in saying that she was there for at least one of these murders. And you know why I think she does that? I think she does that to to convince them because she's like, okay, you guys aren't getting it, so I guess I'm going to have to give some details that only somebody there would know. So I do that. But on the other hand, now it also looks like she's given two completely different testimonies. So to the public, it makes her seem less believable, whereas to me, I feel like it makes, to me, I believe her even more now. Well, especially when the, the to me the uh, the little address book yes that comes into play that we mentioned earlier yes. because she's she the only way she would know because this detective who picked that up and kept it to himself w- was the only person aside from the killer or someone at the killings would have known that's about right. that's right <clears throat> that was where I was convinced but we'll we'll get to that meanwhile Swinney's wife as we mentioned was giving statements and stuff she eventually rode with them to Paul Martin's murder site and described how her husband who at the time of the murders was her boyfriend shot the young couple. More importantly, Peggy started to tell police things that only a person actually at the crime scene would know. One, subsi- one such item that directly connected Peggy and Yule Swinney to the scene at Peggy's statement uh, about Paul Martin's date book. That we'd, that's what we we're talking about. The date book being thrown into some bushes nearby. That's where the detective had found them. He was the only one aware of this. A book that only Bowie County Sheriff W.H. Bill Presley found earlier and knew about at the time. The evidence concerning the date book was a very helpful addition to four different murder sta- different statements about the Booker Martin murders Peggy Swinney eventually made to the law officers. So this woman, who herself had been in trouble with the law numerous times, made her first three statements at the Miller County Jail three months after the murders. In each of her statements, she told police that she was with her boyfriend, Yule Swinney, on the morning of April 14, 1946, when both Booker and Martin were found shot to death at different locations near Spring Lake. Specifically in her statements, she was very precise in her description of Yule Swinney's actions on that early that morning of uh, April 14th. However, some of the details, especially her involvement, changed from statement to statement. As we said, er, initially she was trying to protect herself, and then she just got to the point where, fuck it. Yeah. You know, I'm, I know I'm already implicated in these, and I might as well tell you so that you actually believe me and lock this son of a bitch up because he's he's a, a murderous, on a murderous right, rampage was, as of she late. She was probably just as afraid of him at this point. Oh, she you know, definitely it, was, and you can see it in one of in one of the sets of murders with the with the youngest couple. 
where she he actually made her hold on to the girl while he finished off the young boy. Oh. I think it was Paul. Yeah. yeah, so Peggy Swinney, who died in Dallas in October of 2014, later confessed that instead of being a bystander, she sat in the backseat of the victim's car after Swinney shot Paul Martin. In her first statement on July 23rd, she said, quote, he and I were at his sister's house. We were discussing the murders in Texarkana. I asked him who killed these people. He told me that it was someone with a brilliant mind, someone with more sense than the cops. Jesus. Oh, my God. That's, uh, that's the uh, ego. Yep. That's, that's the, uh, the ego of a serial killer right yeah, there. Yeah, because nobody work. who's not the killer would say that. Because then it's like, whoa, you're mm-hmm. like a fucking phantom killer sympathizer? Like, what's with this dude? Sounds like something Dwight would say. Like, if he did something and it would, people didn't know yet, he'd be like, sounds like somebody really smart <laughs> yeah. would do. Somebody, somebody with experience <laughs> as a sheriff's deputy. Right. Or what is he? What is he? Some kind of like volunteer sheriff's deputy, right? He was, Why? yeah. He was like a volunteer police officer. Yeah, that was one of the best episodes of The Office. Is when they they found the little piece of joint in the parking lot, and Dwight put on his uniform and was shaking everybody down in the office. Oh yeah, I love his. I love his. Didn't uh, it turn out to be Michael Scott's joint? I think or some shit. I think it did, but I think they were. Uh, I loved his interrogation of Jim the best. That was the yeah. That was the funniest. Oh, Jim flipped it on him. Yeah, <laughs> he's like, wait a second. <laughs> uh, I love those 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 two characters, those personalities together. They just have so much chemistry. They're perfect. Yeah. So um, Peggy's statements continued. She said that uh, he and she and her boyfriend drove in from Dallas and stopped at about six thirty p.m. on April thirteenth at a cafe in New Boston Road where they ate a steak dinner. After seeing a movie at the Joy Theater, the couple drank a couple of bottles of beer at a driver's cafe and took four bottles of beer with them. Shortly after leaving the cafe, they ended up at Spring Lake Park, where he parked the car near a dairy. The two finished their beers, and he left the car telling her he was going to take a leak. She said, quote, he was gone from the car for about an hour. That's a long leak. That's some When leak, I heard man. something that sounded like two gunshots. I do not know whether they were pistol or shotgun shots. It was just getting daylight when he came back to the car, and he started driving out of the park at a rapid rate of speed. When he came back to the car, I saw that his clothes were wet and his knees were damp up to his waist. Mm. So, quite a quite a boyfriend you got there. He yeah. goes to take a leak and shoots a, a young couple and uh, flees the park afterwards. Well, to be fair, though, if someone peed for an hour, their pants might get wet. <laughs> <laughs> might be up to their knees. It might be. Shit, it might yeah. be. She said they then uh, drove their green 1941 Plymouth to Peggy Swinney's mother's home, but not before changing his clothes in a nearby wooded area. Uh, he then dr- <clears throat> drove through a pasture into a wooded area to hide his car. Uh. Leaving, how does he explain all these things to her? You know, uh, she's she's clearly. Yeah. I mean, I'm being facetious because she's clearly involved, involved in all these crimes. In my opinion, she was basically the Bonnie to his Clyde. She yes. is a piece of shit, just like he is. But at least in the end, she implicated him in these crimes and. And, and came clean because she actually felt bad, it seems. Right. <clears throat> and she was afraid of him, as you mentioned. I think that was more of it. Less less that she felt bad. I think she did feel a little bit bad, but more that she was just straight afraid of, of becoming his next victim because this guy's just like a psychopath. Oh, of course. Um, leaving the pasture at the end of the day, the couple got stopped by the land's owner who threatened to call the police. Yule Swinney told the man, quote, would sure get hit, would get him after he got out of jail if the man reported him to police. So threatened to kill him if he locked him up. <clears throat> However, in one of her two uh, July twenty fourth nineteen forty six statements, Peggy Swinney said Yule Swinney told her that quote he was going out to the park to rob someone. 
And on April 13th, the evening they returned from Dallas, her version of what happened once Swinney found a couple in the park to target for robbery changed from her July 23rd statement. This time, she said that she got out of the car with Swinney after the two of them had driven about 200 yards past the Martins Coop. She then said that both her and Swinney walked the 200-yard distance to the driver's side of Martin's car, at which time Yule told the man to get out of the car. Yule then told the couple to give him everything they had while pointing his gun at Paul Martin. Betty Jo Booker and Peggy both screamed and begged Swinney to not shoot anyone. After Swinney told his girlfriend to search the couple and she refused, she said that Swinney got mad and moments later shot Martin twice with the 32 caliber handgun. Swinney then told his girlfriend to hold Booker while he went. So she's she's make, he's now making his girlfriend hold this you know this young this young girl Betty Jo Booker um, while he went back uh, to his car and drive it behind Martin's car. Uh, so you know this is just absolutely horrific. If if she didn't really know how bad of a guy that her boyfriend was. Now she's seeing it in action where he just shot a young boy in front of her. And now he's making her hold the boy's girlfriend while he goes and gets the car and where he's probably about to kill her as well. So she's holding this girl to be killed moments later. Right. That's not an accessory. I don't know what is. (laughs) Yeah. Come on now. You're literally holding the killer or holding the victim of his soon killing. Swinney ordered both women into his car before he drove briefly westward on North Park Road for a short distance. He doubled back and returned to shoot Martin twice more since Martin had managed to get up off the road and move north toward where he was shot. Peggy Swinney recalled in much more detailed statement, Ewell Swinney then drove again westward and uh, ordered Booker out of the car and walked with her to a wooded area off the lane where he eventually shot her after telling Peggy to stay on the road near his car. Um... So, yeah, so now she basically is completely implicated herself as an accomplice in these murders. Um, but while Swinney's wife opened up and talked, Swinney himself would not. At one point, we asked him about his wife, and he's just clammed up from there. He was for sure worried about what she was telling them. And oh, I think absolutely. he even wrote a letter to her while they were both in jail and saying, like, you know, basically trying to plead with her not to say too much. Oh. Um, but it was too late. I didn't know about that. Yeah, so police then took the man to Little Rock for a shot of sodium pentothal, pentothal, pentothal. which was basically truth serum. Oh, okay. This is some old school 40s police tactics. Yeah. They're injecting him with truth serum. Unfortunately, <laughs> um, they gave him too much and he passed out without <laughs> saying a word. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> oh, my God. Gave him way too much, man. What yeah. the hell? The truth here. You know, officer, in all honesty, uh, I'm really sleepy. Yeah. <laughs> I think sleep. I'm just going to take a little nap here. <laughs> oh, damn it. Um, quote, I think if we had just kept him there in Texarkana and kept questioning him, we would have gotten the truth out of him eventually, Johnson said in 1996. You know what he's saying. This is a they regret that the they, they regretted that deep into their old age, into the 90s and stuff, these detectives that lived, you know, were working back then, that they didn't get this guy for these murders. I mean, they locked him up for a long time for yeah. car theft and whatnot, but they the fact that they weren't able to, you know, get him to confess really bothered them. And then there was this stupid Arkansas loophole that the that the wife of uh, someone doesn't have to testify against her husband that really helps Swinney as well. Yeah, that that is true. That is true. That's more than just Arkansas, isn't it? There's a lot of states with that, man. I don't know. That is so dumb, yes. though. Who knows you better than your spouse? And if they're doing a heinous crime, I want the... 
it, it, you know, if I if my wife sees me murder somebody, it's only right that she should be able to testify against me. You know, right, right. And I think in a lo- in most states you can, but I don't know. It may have been maybe been changed by now. But I've heard that I've yeah. heard that a few times actually. I've heard that come up quite a bit more than just in Arkansas. Well, it's not a matter. I, I, I guess I, I stated that wrong. She would be able to testify if she wanted to, but the police couldn't make her testify essentially ah. because she was my wife. There you go. That's what it comes yeah. So Swinney's wife refused to testify in court and couldn't be compelled to do so under the law. She married Swinney just hours before she had been taken into custody by police. The new bride under Arkansas law couldn't be compelled to testify against her husband, even even though she'd already what? basically gone over detailed accounts of these murders that he had uh, done with her as a witness to. Did they even sign the wedding certificate yet? Like, there ain't no way. I know, right? It just seems like there could be something that could be done there. How about how about an annulment? You know, <laughs> like yeah. some a couple hours before. Yeah, that's crazy. Even though she was basically testifying anyways. I know it wasn't in the court of law, but coming forward. With what this if that was the reason he married her? Because he knew that loophole, and he knew that she was already, you know, had witnessed all these crimes he had done. Yeah, yeah, and and I think he didn't want to. I don't think he wanted to hurt her either. Obviously, right? Or he would have done that. So maybe he thought, well, if I marry you then you don't have to testify and they can't make you. Yeah. You know, so it takes the heat off of her and it takes the heat off of him. Yeah. Smart move. So for a time, Peggy Swinney was jailed uh, for being an accessory to car theft while the suspect was extradited to Bowie County, where he received a life sentence in state prison on auto theft charges and a conviction on being a habitual criminal. So they got him for what they could, essentially because Peggy wouldn't, testify against him she refused and they couldn't make her and so they not having enough physical evidence against him and without a uh, confession from him because he clammed up after he got in the police car uh, after they'd caught him for the auto theft you know and he was basically ready to confess then but they didn't realize what they had yet until they talked to peggy and they kind of missed their chance and then he clammed up and he's like they don't have anything on me so i don't have to say shit yeah, they showed uh, their cards a little It was just an early. unfortunate series of events that led to him not being convicted of these crimes and being known as the Phantom Killer. In my opinion, I think it's clearly him. Yeah. Uh, Peggy couldn't have known these things otherwise. She just knew way too much, and all these statements lead you to, you know, all the evidence. The, 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 the Black Book, you know, that was a big one for me. Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. He at least killed, he at least killed the two couples that were both killed. Right. Now, I don't know about the first one, and I don't know about the home invasion. The farmhouse. The farmhouse one. But the, the two in the middle, <clears throat> got to be him, right? It's got to be Mr. U.L. Mm-hmm. Swinney for those two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Texarkana citizens were expecting another murder on May 24th, about three weeks after the Phantom Killer's May 3rd attack. It would never, however, take place. And that's another thing that was a strong point that would lead you to believe that Yule Swinney was was the Phantom Killer because after his arrest and he got locked up for 25 years, when they gave him everything they could for all of his you know in, habitual crimes and locked him up for 25 years, no no more attacks that would lead you to believe that they were the Phantom Killer occurred after that. Like the the Phantom killings stopped. Yeah. There is some people who say that the 21-year-old Virginia Carpenter from Texarkana in 1948 is a cold case where 21-year-old Virginia Carpenter went missing. Uh I don't believe that she fits the MO of the Phantom Killer. First of all, she she still to this day has never been found, and it just doesn't seem like the Phantom Killer, or who I believe to be Yule Swinney, ever 
hid bodies to that extent where they would never be found. You know, he would shoot them and leave them lying there most of the time. Right. It wasn't his MO to, to bury a body somewhere where they would never be found or dispose of a body in that manner. Right. Also, I'm thinking he, he was kind of looking for couples as well. I mean, this is just a single yeah. woman here who was taken. Mm-hmm. I don't, that doesn't seem like his, his style either. Yeah. Um, so Johnson, uh, one of the detectives, passed away in 2008 at 97 years old, said back in 1996 that he never knew what became of Peggy Swinney after 1946. So she really got off, man, like even more so than at least Yule got 25 years. They, they threw what they could at him, and he got locked up for a long time. Yeah. She basically got out scot-free. Yes, yeah, she did, and then, then lived till 2014. Yep. Gosh, she lived a long life. Well, UL, UL lived till uh, 94, I believe. Ain't that crazy? He actually got out. Yeah. So he may have killed at least four people, stole multiple cars, God knows what else. Right. There's counterfeit nickels and everywhere. Still got out of prison. Counterfeit nickels everywhere because of him. And, right. And he gets out, you know, and enjoys the, I guess, probably 80s, 90s, maybe 70s, yep. yeah, 80s, so, 90s. Yeah, so as we mentioned, in 47, uh, as a repeat offender, he received 25 years. Uh, however, he was released from prison in 1973 following a habeas corpus yep. proceeding from the found which that a prior conviction in 1941 used for a sentence enhancement purposes was void because Swinney had not been represented by counsel. Wow. 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 Such so slack Kind of a loophole in the, in the justice system. So many Got him released early. Oh. That's heartbreaking. Yep. Thankfully, it seemed as though he was old and not really uh, a, as much of a threat to society at that point because no other crimes were attributed to him, and he died, as you said, at 97 in a in like a, a retirement home. Um, invol- investigation into his involvement in the murders eventually faded. The case remains unsolved, and physical evidence is virtually non-existent today. Swinney, as we mentioned, died in a Dallas nursing home in 1994 at the ripe old age of 97 years old. While most are convinced that the Phantom Killer was, in fact, Ewell Swinney, others remain unconvinced, and they point to the 1948 unsolved cold case of 21-year-old Virginia Carpenter from Texarkana, who was thought by some to be the work of the Phantom Killer, although I believe that just it doesn't really fit, as I mentioned. Right. She was never found. Um, the other main suspect that we that is kind of worth mentioning that people do bring up as the Phantom Killer is Henry Booker Duty Tennyson who lived from 1930 to 1948. He played the trombone in the same high school a, a band as Betty Jo Booker, but they weren't friends. He confessed to the Booker Martin and Stark, Stark's killings in a note he wrote, among many others, just before swallowing rat poison in 1948. His fingerprints, however, did not match those found at the Booker Martin crime scene. A friend of his, James Freeman, provided him with an alibi for the night Virgil Starks was shot. And Tennyson's brothers stated that he didn't know how to use weapons and learn to drive a car only in 1947. They also claimed his convention, his confession and suicide note were induced by quote reading too much comic books. So <laughs> he just wanted <laughs> not to, as much, yeah. not as much strong evidence there prove, proving to him as opposed to Yule. That I just it's Yule Swinney. He was yeah. the Phantom Killer I mean, in my look, opinion. Dude, and, when when uh, Henry Booker Tennyson wrote these notes and all this stuff, he was 18. I mean, yeah, eighteen he just years old. Seemed man. like he had to. He was bored and yes. probably didn't have friends and just wanted some attention. Exactly. Emotions are running high, you, and if you are going to die and you're ready to end your life, you want to be remembered for something, right? Something. Yep. And you're like, well, yeah. this hasn't been solved. Maybe I can 
just write this for a reason for taking my own life. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. It's so yeah, that's the uh, the phantom murders, the Texarkana killings. Technically, they're unsolved. However, I, I can can't think of a, another case where there's such a strong suspect, and it's it seems to be clearly that person and. Yeah, you know, unfortunately, they just weren't able to prove it in court. They didn't get the confession, and they couldn't stupid loophole in Arkansas's laws. Couldn't force Peggy even after all, after all the detailed statements she gave to testify against him. Like how, they, sh- you know what they should have done? They should have found, they should have really threatened to charge her with the murders. Then They're like, hey, you just implicated you held a girl who was then shot by your husband. Like we're gonna give you murder charges unless you. But I guess they – were they not even allowed to do that because of that law? I don't – was that compelling the, witness, <laughs> the right. witness to testify at that point? I don't know what, what you know, what that uh, entails, you know, as far as compelling someone to do it. Right. Threatening them with charges, does that count? Because they should have I threatened mean, her with whatever charges they could that, to get her to testify I mean, that's them. not even a threat, though. If you hold someone who's getting shot, I mean, that's not even a threat. That's yeah, we she, really she can't really should have just been charged regardless. Yes. She was absolutely an accomplice in murders. Yeah, wife, wife, husband, relationship, whatever. Throw all that shit out the window. You held someone while someone else killed yep. them. You're a murderer. Yep. Should have been charged as such. I agree. And she was on a she was on a spree of stealing cars with him all over the place as well. Right. Yeah, yeah it's, it's amazing she kind of got away with a lot of that. No doubt. God. Well, yeah, that's it, man. We hope you guys enjoyed it. Happy Halloween to everybody. Yeah. Uh, you want to get into some, oh, my Gaia. I do. You man. know, you're going to get sweaty in your costumes this Halloween at the Halloween party. You don't want to smell like a monster. You just want to look like one. So <laughs> put on some, oh, my Gaia in your pits. Very nice. Do it. Very nice. That's right. That's right. The good thing is that, you know, Halloween is in the fall, right? So it's cooler. But but you're right. I didn't think about that. Whether you're going to a party or like, you know, if you're younger or if or if you're a parent and you have kids and you're going out trick-or-treating, then you want to dress warmer, right? Or at least mm-hmm. we do here. I know in Vegas it ain't and really. You get got sweaty because you're moving a lot, even though you're trying you know, you're staying warm and it's cold out. And when you move a lot and you got heavy clothing on for the cold, yeah. You're gonna get sweaty under there. Yeah. If you're going as Chewbacca this year, you're definitely gonna want to get some Omagaya. Right? Oh yeah. <laughs> I wish I could do the Chewbacca noise. I'm not even gonna try. It's too embarrassing. <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> I can't do it, man. I'm not even no no no, I'm not gonna try. But I you know what I will do, guys? <laughs> I will tell you about Oh My Gaia. Oh My Gaia is an innovative, all-natural deodorant, fragrance, and beard oil company specializing in paraben and aluminum-free products. Their innovative line of deodorants inhibit the growth of odor-causing bacteria while maintaining effectiveness. At Oh My Gaia, they use only all-natural paraben and aluminum-free organic ingredients. And like Lauren alluded to, you don't want to smell like your costume or like sweat. Pick one of these other scents. You could sound, you could smell like vanilla or cherry almond or sandalwood, lavender, lemongrass, Egyptian musk, Coconut, dreamsicle, leather, lumberjack, honeysuckle, fireside. Or you could pick the very And hands down the best one, true crime pine, baby. The best one, true crime pine. Our very own scent offered by Oh My Gaia and only at Oh My Gaia can you find the True Crime Guys True Crime Pine exclusive scent. And because you guys are True Crime Guys listeners, you can get 15% off your order using the word creeper, C-R-E-E-P-E-R, for 15% off at ohmygaia.com, that's O-H-M-Y-G-A-I-A.com, or at shop underscore ohmygaia on Instagram. Do it, guys. Do it. Won't regret it.
Cool. All right. You want to talk about Patreon for a few minutes, our other shows and stuff, and I'll get our reviews. People that have rated and reviewed the show, I'll get the shout-outs for them going. Right on. Guys, if you are a True Crime Guys listener, maybe you just found us, or maybe you're making your way through all the Freeloader episodes, or maybe you're caught up now. Congratulations. Well, we got even more good news. There is way more True Crime Guys on the Patreon side of things. Patreon.com slash True Crime Guys. For just two bucks a month, you get access to our monthly Patreon exclusive episode, which we released last week. So you wouldn't have went a week without hearing us. You would have just went over to Patreon, got your weekly True Crime Guys fix, and you're ready to go. We also have a new show that we just released. We've been doing it for four weeks now called Just the Banter. Just the Banter is just what it's called. It's just the banter. Me and Lauren, we get on here, we talk about uh, current subjects, maybe things we like on TV, life lessons, share stories, whatever it may be. But just the banter. It will be released every Friday on Patreon. So if you are a fan of the banter, you like the tangents, um, like we've said many times in episodes, we're trying to cut it back a little bit on the episodes um, and just focus more on the crime. uh, Because I know there's a lot of you that like the banter, but again, that's why we started just the banter. So patreon.com slash true crime guys. There's, like I said, there's all those, there's got to be at least a hundred plus audio files on there now counting exclusive patrons, just the banter. Um, I did 35 episodes of a show called Higher Thoughts with Michael that you can get on there, um, as well as some behind-the-scenes stuff, uh, some outtakes, some, um, uh, what is it, Photoshopped art and stuff that Lauren has made uh, back when we first got started. There's so many things on there on Patreon.com, guys, and we're only going to be adding more things. That is right. Two bucks a month gets you access to almost all of that. If you yeah. want just the banter, you go up to five. But then with that, uh, getting access to just the banter, you also get a gold creep van sticker, very prestigious That's as right. well. So five bucks a month gets you some awesome stuff as well. Only place you can get it, the gold creep van sticker. That's right. We just made a. We just had to make a new order, right? We we were ordering them at like fifty to hundred oh at a time. Now we're buying up to two fifty at a time because you creepers are are making us work, and we Crazy. appreciate that. We appreciate that very yep. much. It's a great problem to have. Going through stamps like you wouldn't believe. Oh, right? Right? So are you ready for the reviews, or do you need me to, I am to ready. plug some more I things? I am ready. Okay, let's plug some reviews. I am ready. Uh, I want to say thank you uh, who over the, to those of you who over the last two weeks have gone and rated and reviewed the show on iTunes. Uh, so we got young, uh, Mimi Ying in the U.S. said awesome five stars. I know. Uh, we got Rosalia in the U.S., we got Mommy K eighty one seventy six oh two in the U.S. said fuck yeah five stars. Right on. These guys do a great job. Perfect blend of facts, tangent, stark humor, and respect. If you're into dudes talking about serial killers who don't sound like annoying, who don't sound annoying as fuck, you will definitely this will do nicely. Okay. <laughs> All right, we'll take uh, it. We got Creepy Ronnie or Creeper Ronnie, Creeper Ronnie in the U.S. Creeper Ronnie said uh, best true crime podcast five stars. I've tried so many other po- true crime podcasts. You guys are by far the best. Well, thank you. Thank you, Ronnie. We disagree. There's a lot of great ones out there, but if you like us the best, that's cool with us too. Yep. Uh, we got Claire Richardson in Scotland. Uh-oh. Uh, said, awesome true crime podcast. Super well done. Thank you. Thank Five you. stars. Fire emojis. Love it. Uh, we got Gina Lil Tribble in the US. Said, my favorite podcast. Five stars. My mom introduced me to this podcast because we're both super into true crime, and it's my absolute favorite thing. So shout out to you. GNA and also to your mother. Yeah. Thanks, Mom. Uh, we got VCU. Actually, no, screw that one. Okay. Uh, KD Showalter uh, <laughs> in the US said, yes, five stars. Great job. Funny, respectful, great listen. Thank you. And then we got 
CY Oak 17 in the US said, Love the podcast. Five stars. Easily one of my favorites. Right on. Thank yep. you guys so much for the new reviews. Thanks for sharing the show. Uh, thanks for your Instagram stories. Um, yeah, any way you guys promote the show, we appreciate that very, very much. Uh, a great way to promote the show is uh, to buy some merch because we have a new merch site. True Crime Guys. It's a uh, sweater weather time, guys. It it's, is. it's winter season. You want some True Crime merch, you know you do. You know you want to support the show like that and, and look awesome wearing some of our gear. Hell yeah. TrueCrimeGuys.Threadless.com. Guys, it's 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 a site. It's kind of like Redbubble. Uh, you go, but but so much easier to navigate. So much more user friendly. And when you go to our store and our site, you stay on our store and our site, which makes so much more sense. Like if someone types in my URL to go to my store and they click on a shirt, please don't show them all the shirts in that design. You know what I'm saying? Like from other creators and stuff, which is what Redbubble does and Ken Custom. They they make it so difficult. For, for fans and listeners to to hear, to find their artists that they're looking for. But truecrimeguys.threadless.com. Yeah, and then when we sell a shirt, they throw us like a couple of Yule Swinney's nickels, and they're like, yeah. here you go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Go buy yourself something nice, kid. <laughs> exactly. But with Threadless, we actually make a profit that's worth our time to make, de- to make good designs. You know what I mean? And so, guys, truecrimeguys.threadless.com. There is a link below the description. Scroll down. Go check that out. Click on that. You click on one of the four designs that we have available. We'll we'll always be adding new designs. Uh, when I get the itch to create something new, don't worry, it'll be placed up there, and you can get those designs on about anything you want. There's there's t-shirts and there's different tailored t-shirts as well. Get your style of t-shirt, right? You like fitted, you like soft tees, you like ringer tees. Um, women, they got they got shirts that are more tailored to women. They got sweatshirts, they got hoodies, they got coffee mugs, masks, right? During this time. Of uh, COVID and uh, every all this shit that's going on, protect yourself, but look dope with your creeper mask, right? So there's so much stuff on Absolutely. there. TrueCrimeGuys.Threadless.com. Guys, if you're looking for some new merch, go check that out. Like I said, link below the description. Yep. Does that do right. it? Is uh, that it? Oh, check out our other show, Strange and Unexplained, guys, wherever you listen. Spotify. Uh, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever it is, strange and unexplained. Different format than True Crime Guys, uh, but still under the TCG umbrella, and we appreciate your support on that show as well, guys. That's right. All right. Great show. All right, y'all. Well, we'll see you next week. As I said, happy Halloween. By the time we, uh, you hear from us next, it'll be on to Christmas season, I guess, unfortunately. Yeah, or thanks. I love Christmas. Don't get me wrong. I'm just sad that Halloween season's already just flown by. I know. I know. I know. I love the fall, man. I'm not ready for the winter. Not ready. I know. All right, guys. Thanks for listening. We love y'all. Keep creeping. Keep creeping, guys. Keep creeping. True crime, guys. In the desert, we like a mirage. It's okay if you clicked on us because you thought we was true crime garage. Now we ain't mad at you. Sit down. Let us talk at you. I'm talking to the creeper army. We out here making murder. Get murder. Get murder. In the desert, we like a mirage It's okay if you clicked on us Cause you thought we was true crime garage Now we ain't mad at you Sit down, let us talk at you I'm talking to the creeper army We out here making murder charming Murder charming